sentence for this week. Uh, been away for a little while now. I think it's been about three weeks. Uh, that's all been on me. Uh, the first two weeks were purely gaming related. Um, I got my computer to work Wolfenstein. And uh, the second week was me fucking up. Um, I recorded a in, uh, discussion about the book we were about to discuss, then it, it screwed up, and now we're doing it again. So that means we get to go through super quick and uh, re-refine stuff, and you know, I just won't waffle about Evangelion or something like I would normally. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some industry-related stuff, uh, publishing industry-related business. Uh, but I've got a, a pal to uh, help me with this, uh, Langdon Hickman. Uh, Hello. At, oh, yeah, he's here. Uh, why don't you just introduce yourself? Give us, give people your CV. Uh, my name is Langdon Hickman. I uh, I'm a writer. I've been active for about ten years now. Uh, my Twitter handle is at langdonhickman.com. L-A-N-G-D-O-N-H-I-C-K-M-A-N. Exactly as it sounds. Um, I I've been published. I've had fiction published, um, music criticism, um, personal essays, poetry humorous stuff all kinds of things um pretty wide interests and i just yeah dig into them cool uh he also writes for uh, invisible oranges which is like one of the very very few metal blogs that's ever worth fucking with there's three <laughs> uh, off the top of my head but um and he's on a third one third of them and i'm on another third of them so it's all good uh so let's do 20 Days of Turin by uh, Giorgio Di Maria. Uh, you want to jump right in and do a quick synopsis of this one? Like like half the time we did last time? Yeah. So um so it presents itself as a as a literary mystery um with a, some horror and some light fantasy elements. Uh you hear these rumors in the very beginning following the protagonist who knows as little as you do about some horrible event that happened in Turin 10 years ago and that no one is willing to talk about. And there were strange murders, there was rashes of insomnia, there was some strange um, uh, like public journals that were made available, like personal journals made available publicly. Just the confluence of odd events and now no one talks about it anymore. And the guy digs in and he finds um, a number of different... Uh, avenues about about the the murders um find some strange clues about what they might be finds out people were bludgeoned as though bludgeoned to death as though by massive objects even though there's nothing around that would offer explanation for that um and he's warned repeatedly not to investigate because that's very wrong to do and then uh i'm not sure how much more i should say because then <laughs> The last third of it just takes a wild ass turn, like you're playing a video game, oh, yeah. and just ramps up. <laughs> I, I think we can go full spoilers with this one. Um, uh, giant statues have been playing, have been dueling each other, picking up sleepwalkers by the ankles and batting at each other with them until the people they picked up are dead. And they don't always wind up by the beginning of the next day back on the pedestals they were supposed to be on, which is the big hint that he keeps hinging on for like why he thinks it's the statutes before 
the main character has killed himself by a giant statue off of the coast of uh, Italy at the end of the book. Okay, you didn't have to go quite as spoiler, like not the like, like the last page, but um, <laughs> you can at least get the statues. That comes about like halfway, two thirds in. You could probably you get some inklings pretty early on, <laughs> and then you kind of ignore them because you think, no, it's not going to be walking statues coming alive and beating up sleepwalkers. It's going to be something sensible, and then it's not something sensible at all. Uh, and this book originally came out in Italy in uh, about 1970, and this is the first time it's been translated into English. And um, I guess for uh, Anglo-speaking um, readers, it's gonna there's gonna be points where you'll kind of recognize stuff, like Lovecraft. Um, it's kind of a uh, House of Leaves comes up, although I don't particularly see it myself. And um, but it does have uh, a style that's very European to it, which I think, as you mentioned last time, is uh, the chapters are very episodic. It uh, doesn't do a whole lot to um, explain a, a hell of a lot of things that are happening, although you do get a semi explanation of what at least what's happening, but not the the why of it by the end. And it's uh. If you come into this looking for a ghost story, and it does get referred to as a ghost story, and it's sometimes even a haunted house story, which is it's not even set in any houses, it's, uh, then you're going to be kind of disappointed, but I think in a good way. I, uh, it definitely is something that's it's hard to anticipate exactly what the story is about to do when you pick it up. I read a lot about it before the translation came out, was really excited by it, um, picked up the book, read the foreword, and even at that point, uh, there there were some bits where I was like, wow, it was. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, uh, it's, it's never scary. Uh, it's never even particularly uh, thrilling in the kind of like chase sequence um, way. But it does, it, it's a very least creepy and unsettling. And uh, which is entirely what it was going for, I, I think. And it plays into its, I, I guess, uh, political elements. So it was written at a time when uh, there was a pretty major upheaval in Italy. Uh, there were neo-fascists and red brigades clashing in the streets, bombs going off every other day. And it's, uh, it's, this stuff is never mentioned directly, but it's meant to be evocative of that period. And uh, in that sense, it really kind of works um, in evoking the experience of being in a um, in a city that's like devouring itself. Uh, you don't know whether you're going to wake up tomorrow because you may have gotten, you know, in real life, blown up by fascists and. Uh, this book beaten to death by a statue and it's uh yeah it does it it works pretty well on, on that count and it does uh i think as you were saying last time it evokes the phenomenological aspect of fascism without giving it a name i don't think the f word appears in this at all does it uh no not not from what i recall and i don't think even politics really rears its head um like really at all 
that's it. So, so what do you want to say about the political side of things and the subtext? So it's it's a nice little um nice little literary trick. You can tell that this fits more in the mold of magical realism than a lot of um that put in too fine a point on it other like white European and American magical realist authors do where they because uh, if you go back to the Latin American authors that sort of founded it, it's almost always political. Um, and there's a substitution that's made for the uh, magical that is meant to be a very obvious erasure of what would have been a uh, a political object. Like, it's supposed to be obvious enough that it, it's not meant to trick you. You're supposed to look at it and go, that's not quite right. And the statues function a lot of that way here. Uh, you, it He handles that part well, that where... The notion of mysterious murders and um, a kind of over surveillance of the private um, and an, uh, a public unveiling of an unnamed privacy uh, starts to rattle the mind, and you start get start getting feelings of like uh, the Panopticon and, um, and surveillance and fascism and things like that, where your brain might go, oh, there's a political dimension to these murders. The people must be important. There must be some kind of assassination, or that's where he tilts and grabs. No, it's giant statues. Um, oh, and jewel in, like, you know, kids playing uh, Fortnite or PUBG or something. They kind of trash talk each other in a <laughs> first. Then they go at each other with using humans as weapons. It's a, there's a great line in here where it describes them as um, something like foul and decrepit gods. Um, maybe mangling that particular line. But they're very distinct from like the Lovecraftian uh, old ones and these cosmic horrors which are unnameable and unknowable. Or the stuff in House of Leaves where you never get a resolution. Uh, yeah, and yeah, they're, they're just a, a bunch of assholes. It, it's it's built around that really nice um political like uh i guess the fancy way to call it would be like post lovecraftian horror Ooh. um <laughs> uh the less frou-frou way to explain that is um it takes and this is basically what anyone who isn't or isn't a huge racist and isn't a huge um anti-semite isn't a huge misogynist does with at some point with the project that is Lovecraft's work is you look at it and you go obviously I don't want the racist bits I just want to cut those out but there's something here that speaks what part of it can I get out of the jaws of that and the notion of um, ineffable figures of absolute power that um, don't care about humanity and the viciousness that's visited on us because of that is a pretty, pretty good one pretty obvious one mm -hmm. and it gets transposed here to um and again the political dimension of it becomes so obvious that it like is punching you on the nose um that it's literally monuments to old great figures of history so we have a little bit of the dominance of history over the present which is the classic conservative trope the old dominates the new um, there's a little bit of great figures dominate the common people there's a little bit of the way that monuments and Umberto Eco wrote about monuments as a way to, like, psychically impose on the present. Like, you don't make a monument 
for the past. You make it to control the present and to condition the future. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit to all of that in here, and it's <laughs> kind of reminds me of the um, the kind of contra the not really a controversy, it's a manufactured controversy last year about the Confederate statues in the South. How people yeah, assumed was... these were the uh, <laughs> very manufactured, and um, people assumed these were like hundreds of years old. They're actually made in the '60s, just to in just to show black people what's what's up and who's in charge and um yeah the the statues here kind of have a similar thing i think umberto eco uh was saying a similar thing it's they're these malign figures who control our present and control these public spaces they're always orientated around uh, a statue of a great man or a timeless symbol of um wonder or liberty or something it's uh yeah they're they're very controlling fascistic things and when um yeah when there was like nazi architecture which luckily never got made it was pretty heavy on its statues and a lot of very silly things as well so yeah and yeah. i live right outside of washington dc so that that notion of the fascism of monuments and the way that monuments are supposed to control your thought is sort of impossible to deny. Like we have, uh, not only is there, um, an obelisk made as, um, the monument for George Washington, which, you know, in, in sort of Egyptian, um, architectural, uh, symbology is supposed to be the kind of thing you'd make for Ra or Horus or a Pharaoh. And then making that for if, if we're honest with ourselves, American culture is given George Washington a like semi-divine status as the founding figure. Um, beyond that, no building in Washington, D.C. is allowed to be taller than the Washington Monument so that the monument can be seen at any point in the city. Hmm. Yeah, it's why there's no skyscrapers in Washington, D.C. And that amongst, you know, monumental marble statues of uh, Abraham Lincoln and gargantuan statues of Thomas Jefferson and these Romanesque, uh, l literally based on temple designs. Like it, it, it's hard not to bear witness to like, or uh, like the common architectural trope of a door that's, you know, 20 or 25 feet tall for the entrance of like a courtroom or something. It's literally meant to make you feel small that this institution is bigger and mightier than you and you get that by size hmm. like it's yeah it presses that that bit of the book pressed very much on a raw nerve that i have and uh. <laughs> we don't have much of that in calgary we, there was a um the calgary tower was built to be the highest building in calgary but it was it remained the highest build for two years and it's very small <laughs> and Going up there is utterly useless because it's right by the actual tallest building. So one whole direction is just invisible. It's just people's offices. So <laughs> I don't think Calgary quite pulled this one off. But uh, otherwise, lovely city. Lots of uh, food trucks. Um, but, uh, going back to the book. Um, yeah, I don't know quite what else to say about it. It's... Uh, translated by Roman uh, Ramon Glazov, who's an Australian uh, writer who's written for uh, Jacobin and Tincture Journal and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he seems like a pretty cool dude. 
follow me on Twitter. So if you're listening, Ramon, 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 uh, hi, um, and well done. This is decent translation. Uh, I could have done less um, exclamation marks in narrative. I don't, my uh, own writing teacher told me that if I ever put what a exclamation mark in narrative, uh, that I'd be sent to the school counsellor. But um, so yeah, that's a stylistic <laughs> choice. You can totally do do that. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I thought it was I thought it was curious looking through the backs. I I obsessively read like every bit that's put in the book in front of me. It's old habit. So like forwards, prologues, um, translator notes, like afterwards, like any anything like that. I just I love the way. I, I love the way that they sort of accentuate and um, border a text and reorient it. I noticed something odd when I was reading the back part, which is that the um, the editor who solicited a translation for it's Will Menneker. As in, oh, uh, as in from, if you don't know, which you probably do because you listen to podcasts, that's, uh, that's the main, well, I don't think he's a main host, but one of the main hosts of uh, Chapo Trap House, a uh, friend of the show. So I'm copying one of his verbal ticks there, and uh, wow, I yeah, I I didn't know that at all. I, yeah, I don't know if it's the same one, but I looked it up, and Will's dad has worked in fiction editing uh, for yeah. the New Yorker. Is he's got a really uh, famous? Yeah, Will. Uh, uh, I forget his name. Uh, Daniel Minica, I think it is. Yeah, he's yeah, actually but... yeah, he was on uh, Chapo uh, like a month ago, uh, talking about uh, the Minica family family's life because uh one of the many conspiracy theories about uh why chapter got famous is because it's uh funded by the cia or and or fbi and um it, it would take way, way too long to explain this like <laughs> insane theory that these tankies have come up with online but uh go back and listen to that because it's a really interesting episode and it's kind of weird to see this like you know ironic brooklyn hipster podcast be like here's my daddy you know we're going to talk about the family <laughs> That was a pretty cool episode, actually. You know, I wouldn't get my dad on because he hasn't actually read a book. But, uh, <laughs> you know. You, you don't have to read books to talk about books. I mean, it helps, certainly, but you don't You don't yeah, actually but... have to know how to read, even. That's very postmodern. <laughs> I think my dad's contribution would be, why are you still wasting your time with this? Why didn't you go to school to be a lawyer or a doctor as opposed to and nothing of literary fiction slash creative writing uh it definitely wouldn't be as good an episode as that chapo one very uh, <laughs> yeah wouldn't sounds be a, a potentially a little bit more antagonistic uh, it would be yeah and uh <laughs> unlike uh, will Merker's dad my dad is actually involved in massive military conspiracies he's a defense contractor so uh, huh. yeah <laughs> yeah that would, <laughs> that would that would be a little uh It'd be a tonal shift. Yeah, he, he actually has a, a security clearance higher than the Prime Minister. Huh. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't be able to talk about any of it, of course, but, uh, it, you know, if I ever did, like, sodium pentafol him, I would get a lot. I'd know where <laughs> bodies are buried. Uh, but let's uh, let's go on to a song. Let's do a song right now. Me and you. Come on, let's sing a song. Excellent. Okay. Um... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm editing that. My levels were all over the place on that one. Uh, 
let's do um, a song from a, a ba Italian band, which is kind of thematically appropriate for this one. Uh, they're called Messa, M-E-S-S-A. Uh, they are, I'm not sure where, where they're from, from in Italy, but um, if they're from Turin, then that's cool. They're probably not. They're um, a fairly new band. They've only had one real release called Belfry back in, I think, 2016. Uh, yep, 2016. There's a EP last year, but they've come out with um, a new album called Feast for Water. Uh, a lot of people just, like, blew up over this. Uh, a lot of people think this is going to be a, a end of uh, best of 2018 contender uh, it's not something I normally listen to it's kind of uh, doom drone metal with a lot of uh, very proggy flourishes and it's it's kind of doom jazz it's uh, very jazzy very bluesy but it still has that like doomish heaviness and bite to it we're gonna do a song called snakeskin drape it's the second uh, track off uh, Feast of Water. It's bluesy and sexy and dark, and you should probably be smoking while you read, listen to this. So uh, light them up and uh, listen to Snakeskin Drape, and we'll be, we'll be back in five minutes.
was a uh, Mesa. Uh, check their album out. I'm not sure which um, record label it's on, if any. Uh, let me check. Uh, Oral Music. Uh, A-U-R-A-L. Keep your mind out of the gutter. Um, so let's talk about an article that came out in Politico, of all places, which not the first place you go to look for uh, writing about writing. Uh, Politico, in case you don't know, is a, I'm, I'm going to say it's a neoliberal publication. Uh, it's um, it's anti-Trump, probably pro-Hillary. Uh, it's not going to really go into stuff like, say, class politics or really the left as, as such as it is. But it's, it's at least, you know, they, they don't get the wall. That's about as good as I can, much as I can say about them. So they came out with an article, and this is by a, uh, Lakshmi Varanasi on April 7th, um, called How Trump is Shaking Up the Book Industry. And, okay, it kind of uh, follows that whole at least we'll get good music uh, line of thought about you know, Trump being in power, uh, which incidentally hasn't happened, or at least it hasn't happened any more than usual. I think don't think music has gone any significantly better. But so it's about how the publishing industry is uh, adapting to Trump being in power and how they're coming to realize that they uh, didn't serve the Trump voter with uh, literary fiction mainly. Uh, one guy in this estimates about 3% of uh, Americans read what's called like literary fiction. So, uh, and um, another guy, uh, Lauren Steen of the Paris Review, uh, says he feels ashamed. For a long time, the publishing establishment pretended to speak for more, more people than it really did, and we can't pretend that anymore. Uh, cool thing to note about uh, Mr. Stein, or Steen, uh, it says here he resigned from both positions, and it kind of implies that he resigned because he feel, felt that uh, the Paris Review didn't re reach the Trump voter. He actually resigned for sexual harassment, <laughs> and uh, which you won't notice unless you click through to the links. And I don't think a lot of people noticed that or would have followed the whole Paris Review uh, harassment scandal because it's the Paris Review. And um, yeah, uh, so you're just telling me during the break that you're from um, Appalachia or Appalachia. Yeah. And uh, a big uh, touchstone in this um, in this piece is Hillbilly Elegy, which I haven't read. I think you've read a bit of. Do you want to just go into that for people who haven't uh, haven't heard about it? So that Hillbilly Elegy has become kind of a uh, a running joke between me and my girlfriend, who who also largely grew up here, in terms of how wickedly. Um, out of touch and uh, sophist it is in, in its thoughts. Um, the general arc of Hillbilly Elegy is it's about a guy, and it's, it's a nonfiction piece, it's about a guy who grew up in Ohio and um, heroin epidemic was going through um, Ohio at the time. Um, this is before the opiate crisis that we have now when heroin was sort of the drug du jour of the Midwest, of nowhere towns, um, old coal towns, things like that. Lots of really depressing but powerful nonfiction about that terrible 
crisis. Um, and he wound up finding a way out by joining the Marines, and then he eventually went to Yale, I think, and then did some other stuff. And basically, he got out and he made it to the coast, and he made it to California, and he got to live in in San Francisco with all of his big liberal buddies. And then he um, he would talk about like visiting his family. It's kind of it's, it's kind of skillfully. Uh, admitted in in the book that he really didn't live in ohio for very long it was mostly when he was young and then it was mostly only visits after that so it it presents itself as significantly more knowing and of of the time and place um when it it really is someone who sort of never felt like they didn't really fit at home found some other place that's good for them but then the rest of the book is just this and it's exactly the kind of thing that if if you're a leftist, is one of the things that would drive you towards socialism is a sneering uh, neoliberal elite looking down his nose at rural and working class people for the decisions that they make in order to preserve the lives they have because he can't understand why they don't hate the lives they have they and why they just want to be able to have them. Like for him, the thought of like being in a small town is so beneath him and uh without any great worth because you don't want to change the world by disrupting uh or whatever that you know that's a miserable and meek and worthless existence and like it's it's filled with all this sneering barely concealed rage towards anything that isn't um smartphones gadgets and living in new york I, he doesn't live in New York, but it's sort of the the stereotype of New Yorkers, like people from New York City, from people who are from the center of America, is they think they're better than you and they steal your culture. And their bands do what your bands do, but their bands get national or international press and yours uh, become legendary bands of the underground. Um, yeah, I, just... I have a lot of feelings about this <laughs> no, don't hold back go off king it's uh, yeah uh, it's endemic to exactly why people found a figure like bernie resonant if on certain issues a little bit right-wing and status quo like for international politics stances on palestine things like that he, he wasn't super satisfactory there but at least the notion that people have worth not people of a certain kind have worth and neoliberal uh uh, liberals within the neoliberal political model can pretend as though they're somehow more moral um, because they've tokenized people of color and queer people. But at the end of the day, they don't see anyone as worthy of personhood. And it gets... The thing that's most infuriating about this Politico article and the thing that reveals what you said in the opening, at the end of the day, Politico wrote this article, not anyone who is smarter or better equipped to handle this, is they've resolved anyone who isn't coastal affluent and if we're honest predominantly white as trump voter hmm. and they've got I, they seem to have a obsession with the appalachian region then there's a there's a lot in of red states and appalachia is not all of them and it's not even a particularly uh red area I and mean, they're having a massive teacher strike right now and yeah it's it, actually we have this we've we've admitted and we see this also in the the confederate statues debate we ignore that west virginia split 
from Virginia during the Civil War because of how stridently they were opposed to slavery. Mm-hmm. And that, like, Moral Mondays, which are a big, um, uh, a big uh, civil rights movement that started in the 70s, started in North Carolina around Appalachian uh, communities. Like, it's, uh, there was the coal miner strike in, in West Virginia in the 1910s and 1920s where the National mm-hmm. Guard actually opened fire on on the striking workers like it's not yeah there's this weird typification of mountain folk as somehow being you know big like everyone loves trump and everyone's been republican since since the word go but it's like no these were the people that like died in strikes and that like woody guthrie was getting songs from like appalachian folk is not Mm. conservative music at all yeah, and, and the band we're going to play next, uh, Panopticon, kind of, he does a lot of stuff about the Kentucky workers stuff. It's kind of rough, it's, you know, stereotypically Trump, coal country. And it's, uh, yeah, it's songs about killing your boss. It's, yeah, it, there's a, a strong socialist presence in all of these places that's been forgotten about. And um, there's also in here the, one of the, there's basically three three major problems with this article. One is the one we've spoken about, which is the whole of Trump America being reduced to this one strip of land, and uh, which isn't in any way Trump country. And the other one is the idea that there's no uh, there's no fiction about Appalachia, which is just insane. Yeah, I mean, that is uh, that like William Faulkner. Kind of one of the right? Nobel Prizes. Um, Cormac McCarthy, Sutri was about this area. Um, uh, Scott McCallaghan, who I was talking about on this show, was is wrote a book called Crapalachia and writes about this area. There's, there's uh, James Aggie, like it's like yeah, yeah, Aggie, yeah. Like, enormous names. Like literally all of American literature. Like Poe is is an Appalachian writer. Sure, I, I don't. Know that. I, I was just like, I don't England, but, yeah. No, no, he's from Virginia and Maryland, that yeah. area. But it's like, it's, it's such a, to be fair, I understand that mystifying comment from them in, in a negative sense, in that we have seen a frustrating truncation of, I'm, I'm going to play flippant because I'm mad about this. <laughs> I, I've always been mad about this. Because um, it's it's also hard to get published if you don't live in New York or San Francisco. Those are like mm-hmm. the two meccas in America. And that's mm-hmm. a huge swath of land between those two. Mm-hmm. And just upping and moving to a big city, especially the older you get and the more like you have a job or you have financial responsibilities, that does effectively lock out a large number of people. But And sort of in reply to another thing you brought up, the presence or non-presence of someone like Trump doesn't dictate whether art will be good or bad. It doesn't dictate that whether there we will get art from the middle of America or not. It really has, it changes like what kinds of art we'll get because we everyone reacts to the world they're in. But people from San Francisco to New York are still going to write books. They're still going to make art. That's that, you know, there's not a place in the world you can find that is actually going to be completely artless that just won't happen but yeah these 
they're deemed somehow of less broader cultural value or of less resonant cultural value or that the lessons learned aren't as big. Um, that's why, like when it comes to British novels, there's umpteen bajillion you can name if you're not from Britain that are about London or about um, forgetting the the big city in Scotland where like almost Edinburgh. yeah Edinburgh that like mm -hmm. it, almost every Scottish novel that people can name where it takes places there, and the fact that the fact that there's plenty of work that covers you know a pretty pretty big island with lots of different stuff on it sort of falls by the wayside um and like or you get like nameless quaint overly british british towns and then you know british literature that feels like it's real people and real lives and real situations likewise in america you get the the stereotype of the american literary fiction being basically jonathan franzen type bullshit um of like thick horn-rimmed glasses it's all about being in new york and going to thrift shops even though you're white and a gentrifier and yeah i think his central park apartment costs something like 16 million uh so yeah he doesn't speak for the common man surprisingly um and there's a um someone who i quite yeah i've read interviews with her before a lady named um nicole uh, aragi She's a literary agent in New York, and she refuses to publish um, any uh, Trump books. Uh, she's published stuff by Gina Diaz, uh, Julie Oksuka, Colson Whitehead, who did um, uh, History of Seven Killings, which is amazing. Um, and she talks about, uh, I don't understand that feeling of, well, I haven't got a job. Why haven't I got a job? Someone other has taken this job. And that's just, it's not true of Trump voters that they're jobless. Uh, I don't really know what the statistics are, but on what uh, unemployed Americans are voting for, I'm guessing it would tend towards Trump. But the average Trump voter is lower middle class to middle class. I think it's like 70 grand is their um, income. Yeah. It's kind of like a lot of authoritarian um political upsets it comes from like lower middle class people who are scared of being uh going down the ladder yeah they're more scared of displacement and the rising visibility of things like people of color and concerns of communities of color and concerns of queer folk that it it's like oh no i might become one of them it's where we see this weird slippage also of liberals that wind up shifting right word quietly without bringing it up to people because of the sense of like in america the running joke in certain areas is that it's very easy to be an anti-racist in colorado because there aren't that many black people in colorado hmm. um and the darkness of that joke being that if you look at demographic maps for like percentage wise where are communities of color you see that some of these big like we love Hillary and we hate Trump, that big racist. There's so few people of color there. Hmm. And it's, yeah, it's frustrating in a, in a mind-boggling degree. Because then you also look at certain policies that lock out um, people of color, that lock out uh, poor folk in general. And 
it starts all taking on an image that really casts a different light when even sort of the continued detachment that these literary figures have when they talk about, I don't get these uh, Trump, these Trumpists. And it's like, you don't, you've, it signifies that they bought this weird narrative about what a Trump voter looks like that is totally discoherent from actual statistics that we have about who they are and where they come from. Yeah, and that's going to be really, it means that this whole project, that these all these um, literary agents and publishers are going to start of trying to appeal to Trump voters isn't going to work because they're, ideas about what who they are and what they want are going to be from the get-go just asinine um there's a someone here who talks about how she's just signed an author who talks about guys telling dick jokes and it's not like we've ever had that in fiction apparently and that's apparently gonna appeal to the trump voter um i'm just trying to find the exact uh line here no, I, we can't, but it's uh, it's the same problem that Democrats are having. They have no idea who these people are, they, and they could find out really easily. And they have no idea, when they do find them, what they actually want. And we saw that with these that stream of um, a New York writer from uh, Vanity Fair or The Atlantic or someone goes to Trump country sits in a diner with a guy who lost his steel job who all his friends had died of oxycontin and comes back with profound truths about america from it and that like we had a massive glut of those articles after the election and no one really got the point and, and no one really uh, acknowledged that there's a massive variety of trump voters because it has to be for to win an election yeah, there's yeah, there's the alt right guys. There's uh, upper middle class people who run speedboat dealerships in Ohio and have fifty guns. And there's probably you know Appalachian people uh, who see their friends die every day of oxycontin and stuff. There's it's, it's going to be massive, and you're not going to hit that audience with a few books with dick jokes where someone says the f slur a few times. Yeah, it's this whole project there, this whole road they're going down on is just doomed to failure. And it's going to be to the detriment of good writing that A, would appeal to these to, uh, people in underserved communities uh, and would just be good writing. Yeah, I, I don't, if Jonathan Franzen suddenly uh, I know, gets hit on the head and comes up with a book that perfectly encapsulates the American life in 2018, then fine, well, that's okay to hear about. I don't want to you know, exclude him from the conversation because we're now chasing, I don't know, some strip club owner who writes books about Navy SEALs or something, whatever they think Trump voters want. Uh, yeah, it's it, this whole thing is going to be very to the detriment of books in general. And... The publishing industry has been circling the drain for 30 years and it doesn't need it doesn't need this you know? it's like sometimes it's like 
watching them desperately try to find a new special kind of bullet to shoot themselves in the head with. It's it's a really, it's a mis- uh The publishing industry as well. Um, just it's this mystifying cycle of uh, chasing after trends that aren't even really trends they're entirely made up when like the act of making a story and making it especially over the period of time that it takes to um conceptualize one map one out begin writing one draft it uh, all that kind of stuff it's hard to have it at the very end of the day land in a way that's resonant that will then sell a lot of copies like that that's a messy thing for an atomic and Mm -hmm like a writer or a novel but the notion of what do people want from books isn't really any different now than it's ever been they want oh oh sometimes mystifying mixture of to be entertained to have their own experiences validated to be made aware of the experiences of others to see connections between you know high and low places in terms of be it the abstract and the material or, you know, the old and the new, whatever, um, as trite or as profound as people want to take that angle. And they want at some point to be entertained. Um, And like prose is the easiest thing in the world because you go, what fits the thing I'm talking about best? And it's, it's not, it can be made complex by, by a professor or by like a publishing uh, figure like in these that somehow is like weirdly overthinking like like you were saying that the mystery of a book that will resonate with people is one you should feel ashamed if you're only reading ma- manuscripts of a certain type that's generally a bad practice no matter what time it is and two is the book any fucking good because hmm. most people who read this kind of literature don't have very strong bounds on or at least especially now in like 2018, it's not uncommon to find someone who has like a Norman Mahler, like, you know, big tome or like a, uh, trying to think of that guy who is a big influence on Hinchon and wrote J.R. Um, Gaddis? Yeah, Gaddis. Like it's not, it's not too hard to find someone who has Gaddis and then comic books and then uh, some like, some, detective novels stuff like that like those barriers are a lot thinner now than they were before and so the notion of this weird shaga that you have to chase after of like oh what's the good book what's the book that you also want to look back and smack them in the head and being like none of you expected harry potter to be literally the like third best-selling book of all time behind like a random agatha christie book and the bible um like yeah, it's bizarre and infuriating to what because all this reads to me is there's going to be another crop of books that they're suddenly not interested in anymore because that's not the in thing. Even though the in thing they're chasing isn't actually in, no one actually wants this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I seriously wouldn't see this um, in like Reason magazine or Breitbart or something. They, I don't think they've ever mentioned books in those publications. They they know they've they've seeded culture to the left, and they get to have business in the military. We get culture and academia. And yeah, there's there's no appetite on the left, uh, the right, sorry, for 
uh, the, you know, the right version of JR or the conservative Pynchon. And you know, if that if the appetite was there, these guys would be would be right, would have written it already. God yeah, yeah. Enough, enough of them. I mean, we have... There hasn't been a serious conservative author for so long now. There's been some, like, say, J.K. Rowling, who say dumb stuff that's not exactly congruent with what the left wants, but uh, there's been no... Except, like, maybe Salman Rushdie. Even he's neoconservative at best. But, uh, yeah, the, the appetite isn't there, like you say. It's just no one wants this. Yeah, there's such a strong... This is also why I get I get fed up really quick with basically what amounts to concern trolling for people outside of the literary world in terms of like, you know, when you see the next big person who brings up, but did you know that Lovecraft is racist? And then you have to sigh and go, that's so well known within the literary sphere and so well addressed and so non-controversial. No one will deny that he's a huge racist and that there's large chunks of his literature that is worth throwing in the trash. That's just, there's nothing insightful to be gained from this. No one disagrees. Um, that our notion of what constitutes a right-wing author of literary merit is still, like, bracketed further left than further right. Like, it, it's a pretty well-landscaped endeavor in that way. And largely, incidentally, like, the politics came up much after the fact, but the general thrust of art especially literature is about an empathetic and sympathetic like uh box that allows you to temporarily feel and see as another sees doesn't lend too well uh ultimately to um stridently conservative beliefs like xenophobia and harsh nationalism don't quite cohere to that it's yeah. it's hard to make them work exactly yeah and yet these people are still wondering why they're not uh they don't get trump books oh well it's like you said it's it's the publishing industry's uh oh, it's the publishing industry's um oh, i'm not doing this right cut 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 the publishing industry is constantly shooting itself in the foot or face and <laughs> The only good thing about this political article is that it's allowed a lot of people to show their ass and hopefully given a few good writers an idea of who not to send their manuscripts to. Um, which is fine because there's a billion good uh, agents out there and there's good publishers and there's really good uh, small presses. And yes, the small press world is, is doing superb right now not not necessarily financially it's that no, that's no, never will no. A, no yeah half i mean i'm kind of try as much as i can because on this podcast i want to do like the big releases or the important ones but i try and do as much small press stuff as possible and uh scott McCl mcclanahan who i mentioned earlier is out on a small press from new york uh next week's book is going to be on uh i guess tour books aren't a small press but they they're not one of the big five um yeah, small presses are where it's at. It's a lot like music in that regard. Mm -hmm. If you just listen to the top 40, it's not like I'm going to be um, elitist about it, cause, but you're going to find the really good stuff as you go smaller. But uh, speaking of music and politics and uh, 
folk and revolution and um, everything awesome about the world. Uh, Panopticon has a new album out. Uh, he is a solo artist, although he gets a lot of collaborators on his records. Uh, not too many on this one. It's, um, it's a double album. Hold on, I just need to bring this up. So it's a double album called The Scars of Man on the Once Nameless Wilderness, 1 and 2. Uh, it's split into a metal side and a folk side. They're both equally awesome. He's a really good folk musician in addition to being an absolutely peerless black metal musician. Uh, his name's, I think it's is Aaron Lund. Lund? Uh, he's also uh, an anarchist. He's a brewer of really amazing beer. Just, I want this guy to adopt me. I, I'm perfectly fine with him being my dad and me being his big, uh, beefy adult son. Um, if you're out there listening, then I totally willing to write up papers. We can do this thing. You can you can have a, a child who is fairly self-sufficient, so it won't even cost you that much. And uh, yeah, really, really amazing album. Uh, we're going to do a pretty short song called uh, a ridge where the tall pines once stood. Uh, oh, sorry, doing it again. Uh, and General Avsky. Uh, not sure what that language that is. Um, I think it's maybe Norwegian. And uh, it's, it's the sixth song of um, Scars of Man on Once Named Wilderness. It's really good. Um, Panopticon is awesome. And I'm going to be back next week, um, hoping to set up an interview with a really interesting, also an anarchist. So, you know, I'm going to be pretty heavy on the, the anarcho kiddies. So hopefully balance it out with some commies. Uh, so if you know any good communists out there, then let me know. Uh, you know, just get the whole political spectrum. And um, yeah, it's a re really interesting um, anarchist trans author. But I'll, I'll leave that to next week. It'll be a surprise for you guys, because who knows, I may not be able to sort out the interview. But um, uh, if you want to hang out with Langdon, Langdon he's on uh, at Langdon Hickman on the Twitter website. And is a generally a good follow, as we say in the online. And um, yeah, so listen to Panopticon, and I'll be back next week with hopefully an interview. If not, then uh, I'm planning to do a Love, um, Lovecraft Country, which is uh, kind of fits into what Lando was talking about earlier with um, a post-Lovecraftian book. This one very obviously post-Lovecraftian and really good. It's getting made into a TV series, I think, by the uh, fellow who did Get Out and should be good. So yeah, come back next week, uh, rate and review and smash that like button, get those hearts going and so on, and listen to some Panopticon. Uh -huh.